following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at 10.15 or check us out at DeeringChristian.org. All right, guys. Um, it does not take too much observation in this world to come to the conclusion that we as human beings, and I'm not just talking about men, ladies, but we as human beings are fascinated with power. We are. We are absolutely fascinated with power. You know how ridiculous it is? Um, JB uh, got a mower this past week, and one of my first questions, two questions, I said, well, how big of an area does it mow? He said, 54 inches. Awesome. How much horsepower it's got? <laughs> I mean, it's just funny. Those are the things that you, how, many, how many ponies you got under the hood of that thing, all right? Uh, I know it's a Ford, so those ponies are only worth half the ponies under a Chevy, so you better have a bunch of them, all right? Uh, so it's, it's all of this, this power. It's not just horsepower. It's watts. It's gigahertz. Um, we, we're talking about an athlete. I told you, it's, it's NBA, or not NBA, that'll be soon, but it was NFL draft. And Well, how fast does that guy run? How many, how many times can he lift 220, how many times he bench pressed 225 pounds? I want to know how many times. We are fascinated by power. Bigger, faster, stronger. And let me tell you this, it's nothing new. People have always been fascinated with power. But here's a question. What about real power? And what I mean by real power is power that cannot be explained. All right? We're going to, uh, this is going to be fun because I get the privilege. We're in Hebrews and we're in Hebrews chapter 1. All right? And that's right at the end of your New Testament. But before we get there, so you might stick a piece of paper there or stick your finger there or something. We're going to work our way through the Old Testament just a little bit, not the whole thing, all right? I had the privilege, because I'm preaching today, of cherry-picking some passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. We're going to start with Genesis. Well, that's a good place to start, all right? So turn to Genesis 19, and boy, I just turned open to it. You can tell I've done this today. I did not mark these. I want to give everybody the opportunity to get there if you'd like to, all right? Genesis 19, verses 10 through 13. Let me tell you. The situation we're about to dive into here wasn't pretty. It was ugly. Had to do with a whole region, two towns specifically, more of a region of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? There were two men that entered the scene. These men, as you will read in your Bible, were actually angels. And they come into this town to check this town out because this town had a reputation. And while they were there, I'm just going to tell you what happened. The men of the town wanted to sexually abuse these two men who were really angels. And they went to Lot's house, who was Abraham's nephew. He was living in the town of all places. And he was trying to to shelter these men in this house when this mob comes. And so that's what we're right in the middle of. Verse 10, Genesis 19 But the men, and the men, again, if you read in the context, is angels. So I'm just going to say that. But the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. You see, Lot was outside pleading with the mob, saying, please leave these men alone. They're my guests. 
Then these angels, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in this city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. All right, let's look at the next passage of Scripture. It's just going to be a few books over in Joshua of your Old Testament. We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 5. I believe as we work our way through these passages of Scripture, you'll begin to notice some themes, okay? One theme in in particular. Joshua chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. As you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about Joshua. Um, He was kind of the Old Testament namesake. In the Hebrew, his name was very much like the Greek name of Jesus, Yeshua. All right, and, and, and don't get me wrong, he was not perfect, he was not God's son, but he was a very mighty warrior, he was a very righteous man. And if you're going to say righteousness and holiness and power in Old Testament figures, um, he's going to rank pretty high, pretty high up at the top. All right, he was the successor of that Moses guy. Okay, and this is Joshua leading the nation of Israel into the promised land, and the first place they come to is, is a city named Jericho. Verse 13 of Joshua 5. Let's see what happens to Joshua. Then it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite with him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? He said, No, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. All right, let's turn over a few more pages, okay, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Kind of an ugly time here as well. Um... This, there's the guy reigning at this time in Israel was that guy you might have heard of him. His name was David, King David. Um, he, was, he was a man after God's own heart. He was, he, was a, he was a good man, but he made some mistakes, all right? And he made one, one mistake in particular here that the Lord was not happy about. And um, there were ramifications for that, for that mistake, uh, for that sin. Um, and again, I'm going to be reading for you out of 2 Samuel 24. We'll begin with verse 15. And this is what it says. It says, So the Lord sent a pestilence among Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 men of the people died from Dan to Beersheba. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy, toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of of Arana, the Jebusite. All right, so let's turn a few pages over here to 2 Kings. Just going to be one book over. It's not going to take you long to get there. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm hoping you're starting to see a theme here, okay? 
2 Kings chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 15. Now this is one of my very, very favorite encounters in the Bible, okay? What we have here, there's, there's another guy in charge. He's kind of in charge. Well, he really was in charge, even though the king did not necessarily um, recognize this. Uh, but his name was Elisha, incredibly powerful prophet. And um, Elisha had made the king of Aramea, the Aramean king, really upset because, because every time that king was going to attack the nation of Judah, um, Elisha would let the king of Judah know what was going on. All right, that kind of messes up battle plans, okay, when they've got an insider like that. So he finds out about this Elisha guy, and he says, he's done, I'm killing him, off with his head. That's what kings say, off with his head. So he takes his entire army to go deal with one man, his entire army, okay? And we can read about what happens here in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. Elisha had a young man who was his servant, his attendant, and he didn't quite have the insight that Elisha had. And let's see what happens. It says, Now when the attendant of the man of God, who was Elisha, had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'm sure the attendant's like looking around. It's like, it's you and me, bud. It's you and me. I don't, I don't know where your math's coming from here, all right? Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All right, now one more. Let's turn just a few pages over to 2 Kings chapter 19. And I will tell you this, guys. We're just turning pages in our Bible, but we're turning, we're turning generations here. We're turning centuries here of time, of what we've been looking at. All right? And at this particular time, there was a different king in Judah. His name was Hezekiah, and he was, he was a pretty good dude, all right? I mean, he, he, he was a follower of God. Not all the kings were that way. And see, Hezekiah was the king of the southern kingdom called Judah. There was a northern kingdom. Israel had been divided, and the northern kingdom was called Israel. Right? And Israel was like, man, they, were, they had fallen off the cliff. I mean, every one of their kings was bad. Right? And, and God was tired of it, and the nation of Assyria had come to, to capture Israel. But the nation of Assyria was not happy with just stopping with Israel. They're like, we're going to that southern kingdom too. So the king, through Sennacherib, um, was going, was, sent a letter to Hezekiah, basically saying this. I'm paraphrasing the letter, but it's this. We've conquered a lot of places, and none of those gods of any of those places stopped us. Your God's not going to stop us either. We're coming to town. So why don't you just give up right now? Hezekiah took that letter. He laid it out before the Lord, and he prayed. All right. Let's... Um, See what happens. We're going to read in 2 Kings chapter 19. We're going to begin, and you go one more page over in my Bible, to verse 32. It's the Lord speaking through a prophet to Hezekiah. And this is what he says. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there, 
and he will not come up before it with shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, by the same way he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now catch this, verse 35. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Let me tell you something about power, folks. That's power. 185,000 Assyrians destroyed by how many angels? One. One angel. That is power. Every time an angel shows up in Scripture, the audience of the angels are terrified. As fascinated as we are with power, as I said, that is nothing new. It is not too difficult to see why people have been captivated for a long time with angels. And for good reason. They are powerful beings. Remember for a moment the audience, the original audience to which our author wrote the letter of Hebrews. He wrote it to Jewish Christians. Okay? They are Christians now, but the heritage that they grew up with, they knew these accounts I've just talked about by heart. It was their history. And apparently, these people needed a reminder of the true chain of command and power when it comes to God. So let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 1 and read it together. We're going to be looking at the last two-thirds, last three-quarters, more or less, of this chapter. Um, But we've really got to start where we started last week. It's going to be tough to start right in the middle. So let's begin with verse 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard again. It says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions and... You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all become like an old garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And what we have in that first chapter of Hebrews, guys, very specifically, is seven Old Testament passages of Scripture, most of them from the Psalms. Okay? And by using these passages, the author did it for one purpose. And the purpose is this, to show the audience Christ is superior to the angels. There's a few things that jump off the page at us when we look at this chapter in Hebrews. So we're just going to go through those here just for a moment and we'll be wrapping up shortly. The first thing that jumps off the page at me comes out of verse 4. And I even kind of emphasize it a little bit as I read it. And he talks about he talks about how the son he has become much better than the angels. Okay, something to understand about that. That word, better, um, that is used 13 times by our author in this letter. As a matter of fact, the, this series is entitled, The Greatest, okay? There are many sermon series out there having to do with that, how Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is greater than so many things, okay? We pull that directly from Hebrews, meaning Jesus is better. And the first thing he is better than is the angels. You see, Hebrews is really a comparison contrast of who Jesus is as it relates to what came before him. And he came to fulfill all that came before him. Now, we're not going to jump into that very much more because the whole letter is about that. But if you like to write in your Bible, which I'm glad, I hope you do. It's, it's, it's a living textbook is what this is, okay? Don't ever be afraid to write in it, okay? If you have a problem with that, write in pencil because then you can erase it later if you really want to, all right? But it's just, it's, it's pages. It's what these words represent that is life-giving. So if you like to write in your Bible, um, underline better every time you see it in the letter of Hebrews. And I'm guessing you're going to find it several times. All right, continuing on. It's interesting to me that not only the author of Hebrews, but all of the New Testament authors, when they looked to the Old Testament, you know what they saw? Jesus, all right? They saw him everywhere, from David to Solomon, from Job to Moses, from Nathan, the prophet Nathan, to the prophet Isaiah, and everywhere in between. And we're pulling out of Old Testament scriptures here. There's like, what's that have to do with Jesus? Well, our author understood as it pertaining to Jesus, because when they saw the Old Testament, they saw Jesus. Now, continuing on in verse 6, it talks about this firstborn thing here. Does that mean that Jesus was born? No, what it's talking about is Jesus, Jesus is like the Father. He precedes everything, okay? Jesus the Son is the object of angel worship, okay? He precedes everything. And Moses and Job both allude to the fact that the angels worship the Son. And let's continue jumping ahead. Verses 8 and 9, I told you that some of the scriptures, that they don't look like Messiah scriptures. You know what 8 and 9 is about? It's pulled from the Psalms, and it's, it's a wedding psalm. It's like a royal wedding psalm is what it's about. It's a celebration of a royal wedding. And our author applies it to the Messiah. And the thing about it that's just, I mean, catch this. It sounds like it's almost hard to say. Verse 9. 
You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Now read this. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. I love that. God anoints God. God the Father anoints God the Son. And in that passage, it's talking about the anointing of oil, but it was so much more with Jesus. Jesus was anointed by God the Father with something else. You remember when he was baptized? We read about it in the Gospels. He was baptized. John the Baptist didn't want to do it. He's like, man, good grief. You're supposed to baptize me. What am I baptizing you for? Jesus says, we need to do this to fulfill righteousness. And after that takes place, Jesus came up out of that water and a dove came from heaven. But because we have the authors of the Gospels, we know that that was not really a dove. It was the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And God anointed his son while he was in this world by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter giving the gospel the first time to the Gentiles talks about that, how God anointed his son with the Holy Spirit. So, moving on from there, in verse 9, we're still kind of in the wedding scene, okay, you know, and it's talking about how Jesus, it says there, he was anointed with the oil of gladness above your companions. What are the, who are the companions he's talking about? Is he talking about the angels? No, this whole passage is about Jesus being contrasted compared and contrasted with the angels. It's not talking about the angels. So who is that companion talking about? It's talking about the guests of the wedding feast. Guys, it's talking about us. So many times in the pictures that we have from the Bible of glory are compared to the most festive thing that the Jewish culture did. Wedding feast. Those folks knew how to have a wedding feast. They knew how to have a wedding party, okay? It wasn't a reception with cake and punch, all right? It was a feast that would last days. And Jesus is the bridegroom welcoming home his people, the church. And guys, it is going to be a good day. It's going to be great. Joy will be overflowing, but I'm telling you this right now. The joy of one will supersede the joy of all of us. As joyful as we will be, the joy of the Son will be more. His will be greater. Next, um, as we look through this, verses 10 and 12, I like these verses, 10 through 12, talking about Jesus and his creative power. Um, Just like the sum was before everything that we've already looked at, he will outlast everything as well. And I'm so glad our author included one word in verse 12, okay? It says, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. In other words, the creation, the created world, you will roll them up like a garment, They will also be changed. There will be some destruction when Jesus returns. But guys, that destruction will precede a a restoration. A remaking. And I love that part of scripture. Our author talks about the world to come that Jesus is in charge of. Even though it's not even here yet, the world to come in chapter 2 verse 5. We'll look at that next week. Okay, Um, But he's not the only one that talks about that. Paul talks about it in 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 the letter written to the Romans. About how Jesus will remake everything. Peter talks about it. 2 Peter chapter 3. John The Apostle John talks about it in Revelation 21 about the Son will remake the world. Matter of fact, Paul goes to the point in Romans chapter 8 of saying that creation 
longs for the day that it is remade by the Son. It's not the angels doing this. It is the Son. And then finally, we get to verse 13. All right? And it's kind of echoing what we saw in verse, I believe it was verse 3, sitting down at the right hand of God. Look to verse 13, and it says this, But which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Got a question for you. Do angels sit in the presence of God? What do you think? I'll give you a hint. No. Pretty, pretty. I mean, it's one of those yes or no questions, you know, 50% chance, right? But if you, I, 100%, you say yes, you're wrong, okay? All right? They do not. And you're like, well, how in the world do you know that? Well, I know that because Scripture talks about it just a little bit. Revelation chapter 8. You know what it says about the seven angels? Uh, pretty powerful angels here, I'm talking about, all right? It says, the seven angels who stand before God. Now, if that one doesn't ring a bell so much to you, this one might. Luke chapter 1. We looked at this just a few months ago. Can you believe? It's been almost five months since Christmas. I mean, doesn't that seem like yesterday? Good grief. You young people right here? Isn't that funny? That's why you sit up here, Robbie. So when I say young people, you're like, Robbie and Eddie, like, he's talking to us. All right. Um, um, Trust me, the day will come when the days will fly by, okay? And the dragging of high school and junior high and grade school will be an ancient memory. And you'll be like, why can't time slow down again? All right. So anyway, but I'm sorry, I'm chasing a squirrel. I'm going to get off that squirrel. All right. When you go to Luke chapter 1, what you see is a guy named Gabriel, an angel named Gabriel, shows up to a guy named Zachariah. He was a priest. And he tells Zachariah this very simply. He says, you're going to have a baby boy. And Zachariah says, <laughs> He's just like, we've been trying to do that a long time. I'm old. My wife is older. Now, I don't really know if Elizabeth was older than him, but I'm assuming he would say something like that, you know? And he's like, he's like, he's like, you got to give me a sign. You got to give me a sign that this is going to happen. And this is what Gabriel says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You want a sign? Here's your sign. You're not going to be able to talk till it happens. How do you like that for your sign? Gabriel, who came there from the presence of God. What was he doing in the presence of God? We're talking about Gabriel, the chief messenger of God. And he stands in God's present and here's a question they don't sit well why not is it just a glory and an honor thing well i imagine that's got a little something to do with it but i think there's more to it than that they stand ready ready for what oh isn't it so great that our author adds verse 14 to this are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation Understand something about that will inherit. That's a pretty amazing little phrase there. Um, Paul is, Paul, it's not, we don't know if it's Paul who wrote this. Paul did write a lot of the New Testament. I know I'm going to say that more than once as we look through Hebrews, all right? We don't know the author. 
But the author was writing to Christian people. They are Christians. You know what Christians are? Saved. All right? And he's saying, will inherit. So when he's talking about inheritance, he's not talking about the salvation cleansed by Jesus' blood the way we are right now. He's talking about glory and what is saved by the Son himself for them. And what he's saying is is this. Those people, my people, the angels are here to serve them at the bidding of God. Guys, we can never overlook the significance of Hebrews chapter 1. And it's, it's so interesting. I have never heard a sermon nor preached a sermon over Hebrews chapter 1. Ever. Now, there's other places that preachers love to go in Hebrews, okay? Hebrews chapter 10, talking about that do not neglect the assembling together thing, you know, because preachers always like to talk about church, all right? And then there's that great passage about the faith of, of heroes, followed by, we've got this incredible cloud of witnesses surrounding us, therefore let us run with endurance, this race set before us, and talking about do not despise the discipline of God, for God despises. For God disciplines those whom he loves. I mean, there's so many good things in Hebrews. I'm just barely scraping the surface, but I've never heard anyone preach about chapter 1. That's a shame. I'll tell you why. Because there is no power in this physical world in which we live that can compare to the awesome power of God's angels. One angel destroyed 185,000 valiant warriors. When an angel shows up in Scripture, as we've already said, people are terrified. Guys, we're talking about... We're talking about Marvel power, Marvel Universe power here, okay? Forget Thanos and his snap of the fingers. Big deal. This is real. And that is... The power of angels. It is real. Now, here's the other thing. We might never know the extent of the work, their work around us in this world. They are at work. But something we have to remember and never forget is that those same incredibly powerful angels cannot compare to the glory, the majesty, the creativity, the knowledge, and the power of Jesus Christ, God's mighty Son. Ever. They are commissioned to do one thing. His bidding. And His bidding is this. Serve my people. Our author is telling us in Hebrews, pay attention to what real power is about. You know, it was, it was really, really sinking. I, I get the privilege on Sunday mornings of, um, of preaching a couple of times, but I also get the privilege of of, of worshiping with the praise team a couple of times, with, with 
with the body. And um, that is a privilege, I will tell you that. And sometimes it's crazy. I don't even get in here until the first song's already done. It's just the nature of Sunday morning sometimes. But I did have the opportunity this Sunday to be in here for at least the last two songs of both services. And, and, and it didn't really click in the first service so as much as this service and worshiping. Maybe it had something to do with my family beside me worshiping how what we sang about gained so much significance when we remember the mighty power of our God. The God who made it all. The God who holds it together in the palm of his hand. Holds something else in his hand. His people. The God who can do anything. Who loves us. Who loves you. And loves me enough. take our punishment in our place. It's interesting how often we use the word devoted and devotion and we tie it into from our side of things when it comes to God. You notice that? We even we even have a name for it. You do your devo. I mean it's short for devotion and we talk about devoting a time to to God. And and devoted people do devotions because they're devoted to God. And and we 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 look at it from that perspective when in actuality think about it from God's perspective. How devoted is he to you and me? Enough so that he would pay the price so that you and me can spend eternity with him. It blows my mind that Jesus, the cross, but even before the cross, that he shed this level of authority, power, and glory to come down into this wretched place, this sinful world, and live and die and conquer death for us. It's mind-blowing. Much more than the mind-blowing power of angels. The mind-blowing love of our Lord.